Well, did you follow the news this last week? Any news followers here? Anybody? Read the news. Do you see that Jesus is back in the headlines? All right, he made it back. Jesus is back, but not the Jesus you're thinking of. Jim Caviezel, the guy who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, was all over the headlines this last week because he spoke at a conference uh, that was entitled, and this is the title, For God and Country, Patriot Double Down 2021. Anybody watch that? Didn't catch that it was being streamed online. Uh, It was in Las Vegas, and he delivered a speech that garnered quite a response. Here's what Jim Caviezel uh, was saying. There's one point uh, that he was talking about freedom. And as you talk about freedom, that got my ears uh, tickled a little bit because I'm reading about Galatians, and I'm reading Christian freedom in there. And as you can imagine, an actor like Jim Caviezel, particularly an actor who starred in a Mel Gibson film, uh, why not quote another Mel Gibson film? And he did that. He quoted from Braveheart, said, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom, right? So he gets all fired up. The crowd gets fired up with him as well and is getting super excited with that. But this freedom discourse quickly takes on religious imagery. He goes on in his speech to say this, we must fight for that authentic freedom and live, my friends. By God, we must live and with the Holy Spirit as your shield and Christ as your sword, may you join St. Michael and the other angels in defending God and sending Lucifer and his henchmen straight back to hell where they belong. <laughs> the last part was met by cheers in the crowd. <laughs> I don't know if that's supposed to be a note about what's going to happen next, or that's what happened. That's what happened. There was cheers in the crowd that happened with that, but then there was also some concerned responses online. I think there's some people that imagine themselves they might be those henchmen. But perhaps more concerning here, I think, for us this morning as we come to Galatians is how this kind of blending of religious and and political can confuse our shared language. It confuses the the language that we share, how we might be using the word freedom, for instance. Our current public discourse in talking about freedom pits neighbor against neighbor, puts us against each other, at odds with each other, each demanding for ourselves what is our due, our inalienable rights. Insert fist and stop on there with little concern for others. It's about myself and what I want, what I, am, what I deserve. But this notion of freedom is quite different from what Paul is talking about when he talks about Christian freedom, particularly as he talks about it here in Galatians. So if that's not what Paul's talking about, what is Paul talking about? And that's what we hear in our, in our text this morning. But first things first, remember that last week, uh, there was a few comments actually made after the sermon last week about a phrase that I used in Maybe I should set the record straight here this week. Um, folks said they noticed that I had said that comment, you have to make the cut in order to make the cut. And so they had a conversation with me about that. Well, in similar vein, Paul's retort to the Galatian church today might simply be, all this talk about cutting, cut it out. <laughs> Sorry. I had, I didn't write, there's a lot of time to do sermon prep during the week. Last week's reading concluded, of course, with that imperative that said, uh, here's this idea of the yoke of slavery. Uh, Don't submit to it again. That was verse 1 of chapter 5. Now we get into verses 2 and 3, and we find more specific references here to circumcision. And so quite appropriately here, cut out all that talk, um, because it's not good for you. It's not good for the church. It's not good for where God is leading you. Paul warns us here is not to go down this path. And he does that for good reason here. Note what he says in verse 2. Christ will then be of no benefit to you. Know what he says in verse 3, you'll be obliged to obey the entire law. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, you will cut yourself off from Christ, you'll cut yourself off from grace. 
And so Paul has good reason to tell them that's not what God's plan is for them. It's not God's plan for us. This Jesus plus, that's, that's not what God has in mind for us. Our belonging, their belonging back in the first century, their belonging to this Jesus community doesn't come by marking flesh. It comes rather by being marked by God's spirit, as we hear in verse 5. And that marking has present and future dimensions. It has effect here now, but also as we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's the day that our membership is confirmed. That's the day that we find vindication, uh, that we actually are members of what God has been doing. So here now, marked as members, but also looking forward to that day uh, when that membership is truly realized in the age to come. So don't go down the path of the agitators. Don't go down the path. We've heard this theme over and over and over throughout Galatians. Don't go there. And Paul would say here, you don't go down that because that path is doomed from the start. Instead, he writes in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working in love. Does that sound familiar? That combination of words, faith working in love, have we, have we heard that somewhere in Galatians? Well, we just have to go back to chapter 2, particularly in verse 20 when we hear talk about the one who is faithful, Jesus Christ. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're not surprised here to find that the Jesus community is to assume a similar self-giving identity, which is key to understanding Christian freedom. Now we can get into Christian freedom. Of course, we have a little issue here. We've talked a little bit about the Reformation already and the great gifts that have come from the Reformers and from our heritage. But there's also another piece that hasn't been quite as good as a gift. There's a story about a guy who was stranded on a deserted island. You may have heard this story before. And when the Navy found him and rescued him, they noticed there was three structures on that island. They said, what's, what's with the three buildings? He said, well, the first one's my house. Okay. Second one's my church. What's the third building? The church I used to go to. <laughs> and we see that playing out generation after generation, uh, even in our own tradition. There's a movement away. So getting this idea of Christian freedom, it's, there's a movement away from people's different ide ideas of what Christian freedom looks like and how that's expressed uh, in the church. So let's hear what Paul says here. And note what Paul will say in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only to do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. Now this idea of being slaves one to another, of being bound to each other, responsible to others within the Jesus community can feel a bit strained today, as we know from that guy on the island. It can feel, it can feel strained. We can feel like in our own contentious culture right now that the idea that I'm responsible to others and that I might lay down self at some level, it feels difficult. It feels like I'm losing something in that process. And, and that's the real challenge for us. There's an article that was in the New York Times this last week and a gentleman named Thomas Edsel concludes that article by writing, the forces fracturing the political system are clearly stronger than the forces pushing for consensus. And I wonder if that's a, a line for us as a church here today as well, that we feel that same pull of these forces. But maintaining individual bunkers, these rigid bunkers, isn't our calling. Recall what we heard at the outset of Galatians, how we are called. 
Grace to you and peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age. Like those Israelites of old, we are recipients of an exodus. We've been rescued from bondage and slavery, that we've been taken out of the evil age, so to speak, in some ways. And that, that shaping narrative of rescue is one that continues to shape us and marks us today and should shape the way that we respond to each other. That God has freed us and claimed us as a people of God's own. Of course, the many categories that we attempt to sort ourselves out into, the different groupings we try to get ourselves in and that we make as determining factors to who's in and who's out and who belongs, we've already heard that those are inconsistent with the claim that God has placed on our lives. Of course, they certainly create a lot of problems on the ground. They create a lot of issues for us in real time. And they did in the first century. Paul's not naive, he's not ignorant uh, to these type of things in the life of the church. And we hear that here in our text. And what we find here are two different expressions, two different ways a community can come together or pull itself apart. And we see that here in this text. When I was a kid, there was an animal trapper who was teaching Sunday school in my church. <laughs> That's quite a way to introduce somebody, an animal trapper. He was an animal trapper. He would come with his traps. He showed up one day, actually, and he brought a whole number of these different animal traps and set them across this table. I'm not sure how safe that is for a bunch of kids standing by, these traps that are all activated. <laughs> but he activated the traps, had them set out on the table, and then he reached into a paper bag and he pulled out different pieces of fruit that he had brought, and pinned to each piece of fruit was one of these words of the fruit of the Spirit. He had different ones on each different piece of fruit. And he would take the, the fruit and he would begin dropping them into these active traps. And of course, the traps would slam shut. And is there any fans of Gallagher here? The comedian Gallagher? Does anybody know the comedian Gallagher? Is there a few of them? It was that on a smaller scale, right? Fruit flying, juices flying, that sort of thing. Kids going excited, going, hey, can I throw the next piece of fruit in there? Uh, people grabbing a tomato and going, wait, is that a fruit? No, I'm just kidding. So... So people going through and doing all this type of sort of thing, and he got to this point where he had us hooked, right? And here was his big line, the devil's schemes can destroy the Spirit's fruit. That was his big line, right? So your kids are getting excited. The devil's schemes can destroy the fruit of the Spirit. That's clever. But here's a more troubling point. I don't need the devil's help. <laughs> I don't need the devil's schemes to wreck the fruit of the Spirit. I do just fine on my own. I don't need Satan to do it. I don't say, have to say the devil maybe do it. I don't need that to put myself into isolation. I don't need that to make others feel like they don't belong. And of course, Paul recognizes that in this, this church where factions have formed, where there's a separation that's beginning to form with folks who are saying, you gotta, you've got to do the, the plus. You've got to become Jewish in order to belong. He realized that these factions have already created difficulties amongst the group there. You hear that in verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's not coming out of the air. That's Paul knowing something about this church he's talking to. He goes in verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Again, he's not just pulling stuff out of his back pocket to say, in case you're doing this. He probably has very much in mind that this church has already gone down this path of destroying itself. And he's saying, don't become those people. This isn't only wrong for a spirit-led Jesus community. And spirit-led, that's Exodus language. Led by God's spirit. It's not good for the members of the faith community. So Paul counters them by, again, talking about these two different expressions. He talks about works of the flesh 
and fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21, Paul says those are obvious. These are supposed to be obvious. As I read through the list this past week, I wonder how many of them are as obvious as, we think, as Paul makes them out to be here. But he starts out with this, this list uh, of different things, and I want to encourage you this week uh, to spend some time with these two different lists. I want you to spend time just, just uh, marinating, ruminating on these things, thinking about them, letting them soak in and think about what are these different categories and how do they destroy us individually as well as, as a community. But what he says here in these, this first group, these works of the flesh, these are things that undermine our being uh, free to enjoy our true humanity. They, they inhibit our ability to flourish both as individuals and as a community. Some have gone on to see that in this group here uh, that we have 15 outlined pieces, but they fall into kind of four categories. They talk about them as being sins of immorality, sins of idolatry, sins of animosity, and sins of intemperance. And though we should note here that Paul himself will say, even though there's 15 items here, he'll say this list is only partial. That he could go on and on. He could come up with more and more examples. And isn't that just like us? To create more ways to do harm to each other. Right? We get creative with each generation. We find ways. We haven't quite figured that one out. And so we look for ways that we can hurt each other. One other piece I'd note about that list of these works of the flesh is sometimes when I've been in conversation with folks, the the list itself leads off with this this word here that is translated as fornication and also it's uh, understood as sexual immorality. The word itself comes from an origin of prostitution is is where it came, but by the first century, it kind of became more of a general expression of, of sexual immorality or fornication, any sexual activity that would be outside the bounds of a covenant marital relationship. But people go, why is that at the first of the list? I can think of things that would be far worse than that. Like in our generation, that doesn't, you know, is, is that the worst thing you can do? Why is that at the top of the list? Why would Paul do that? Is Paul some kind of prude? Like he's coming up with that sort of thing? And I would just mention here that a similar kind of list in Mark chapter 7 begins with the same issue, the very first thing. And that was spoken by Jesus. And so Paul's following in a tradition, a Christian tradition, that stems all the way back to Jesus, that this list of formation or lists like this, of talking about things that form this type of grouping, things that destroy us and destroy our, our sense of community. But not necessarily the obvious, but maybe the more necessary list is what follows. And that's what's called this fruit of the Spirit, or expressions that find their origin in the Spirit in verses 22 through 23. Now, I did a little search online, <laughs> And I I was wondering, because I always hear this, I always hear fruits of the Spirit. Have you heard that before? The fruits of the Spirit? There's an S at the end, plural, fruits, and they have all these different fruits, mango, apple, pear, whatever. Um, It's not fruits. It's a singular word. The word there in the Greek is singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And I actually went out to our uh, denomination's website, and I found a curriculum that said, the fruits of the Spirit. I was like, what are you doing? It's fruit of the Spirit. It has one origin, one source. It's not like we can specialize here. (laughs) You can't say... I'm all about love, but I'm not really about joy, (laughs) right? You can't, it doesn't quite work that way. That the spirit community is blessed with these gifts of of all these things come out, or they come out as representative of the spirit's activity and work in the life of the church. And this list, this list here is far more uh, organized. It's less chaotic than the other list. The other list is 15 and goes on and on and on. This one's organized into nine, three groups of three that come together as one person is observed here. 
And they don't undermine the unity we share in the Jesus community. They actually strengthen it. If we embodied this, if we lived this, if this was who we were identified and defined by, it would strengthen our community and our resolve and our love for one another. But we also see here that there's no law against these. There doesn't have to be. This is that embodiment of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you could do this, if you could live these places, if this is who we are, we're living into that, that identity of, of true love and expression of love. Belonging in Christ, our desire and our efforts are for this latter expression, this fruit. It's not for the former. So as those who belong in Christ, our grateful response is to, to let these fruits be expressed and to grow, to be harvested here in this community, not to be ones who dwell in that earlier place. Of course, this all makes great difference, but it's not easy. It's not easy. N.T. Wright uh, will note this in his, his commentary. As has often been noted, unity looks comparatively easy if you don't care about holiness. Right? Works of the flesh. If you don't care about holiness, you just get together and ignore differences of lifestyle. Likewise, holiness looks comparatively easy if you don't care about unity. You just split off from everyone who disagrees with you. In both cases, of course, looks deceive. Wright will go on to say, the hard struggle for the Pauline blend of unity and holiness will involve suffering, not least for church leaders facing misunderstanding and criticism from all sides. Welcome, Paul might say, to my world, to the world shaped by the Messiah's Christ. Friends, as we, as we, as we come uh, to a text like this, and again, my encouragement is for us to spend time this week, each one of us, kind of reflecting and meditating on those different attributes. The challenge for us is to ask where we might be getting pulled apart. Where do we sense that tension? Where, where the things that Jim Caviezel identified um, about the needs for freedom in our culture are coming into our own space and our own place here. I was reading this past week a 2017 article from Christianity Today where uh, the author uh, entitled the, the article, Baptism Doesn't Have to be Divisive. And this writer, Andrew Wilson, finds inspiration in the unbroken water between the English Channel where he lives all the way to North America. He says, on land we are divided by channels, mountains, national borders, and culture, to say nothing of our baptismal liturgies and theologies. But then we paddle in the surf. We are caught up in the same unbroken sea, defying earthly divisions and boundaries. Wilson goes on to conclude that in baptism... We are caught up into one massive, all-embracing body of water, which defies earthly divisions and boundaries. We move from being isolated souls to united saints, from standalone individuals to members of one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We become one body with one Lord, one faith, one hope, and one baptism. The waters unite. And that is a powerful sentiment. And that is beautifully expressed. And that is not always our experience on the ground. I was talking to someone this past week who used to work for a Christian organization. And they were given the task of sorting out a database of different churches. Taking the physical church uh, address and uh, putting that with the church's name. And saying, do they match? And they found a discrepancy in their list. And so they called up the congregation. They called the offices to see where that, what that congregation, what the deal was. And it turns out that that church split that the church that had the name that was in the database was actually meeting at a different address, and the one that stayed had a new name, but was at the old address, right? You had to fix the database. She asked them, why'd you split? And they said it was over the age of baptism. The age of baptism. They said you had to be eight years old. We said you had to be nine. 
right? <laughs> right? That's not what God wants for us. That's not who God wants us to be. God wants us to be a community that looks different. So no Braveheart speeches this morning in closing. No speeches to entrench ourselves in our own uh, thoughts of who we need to be or our own compounds that we're going to exist in. No calls to drive Lucifer and his henchmen straight back to hell. Not calling for that this morning. No efforts to fracture the community we share with one another because of the things I seek for myself. But rather here, a recognition that we are a people who've been rescued. A people who've been rescued and a story that defines us. A diverse people who've been claimed as one people, as God's own people in Jesus Christ. A community that's marked by the Spirit. And here on this Reformation Sunday, a community that has been shaped by Christ's cross. And so a community that expresses fruit appropriate to our calling. May that be our lives and what we experience this day and each and every day.